Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast, a podcast presenting the very best recorded panels and seminars related to game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the kind contributions of the panel speakers and Metatopia 2018. Episode 198, Choice Mechanics. Presented by Anne Ratchet and Rob Donahue. So, hi everyone, this is the Choice Panel. If you are looking for a different panel, it's not Run in this room. Run, now. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say let's wait like a minute or two longer. Okay. Well, I think we're, we're getting close to... Yeah. Yep. Not realizing the boardroom is downstairs. Yeah, navigation, especially on the morning, first morning, is always a little bit dodgy. Mm-hmm. Yep. I guess it's technically afternoon by now, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it is. Time is weird. <laughs> yeah, my 9 o'clock session was all no-shows. I wasn't my session, so no worries. I showed up for someone else's thing, and like apparently I was the only one who did. So, nope. I'm like, all right, well, that was a self-correcting problem. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, okay. You had people who reported having three hours of sleep last night, and it's like, first day of the con, guys. Come on, we can do that Saturday. Exactly. We can do that Saturday. Get the sleep now, and then uh, then you can play like. All right. Okay, so welcome to Choice Mechanics pa- panel. Um, my name is Anne Ratchet. Uh, pronouns she, her. Uh, I'm Rob Donahue, he, him. Um, I, I guess a little background. Uh, I uh, write and design uh, and most and half own uh, Evil Hat Productions. Um, there is a great irony to be being up here since Fate is arguably a game that uh, is sufficiently freeform in some of its things as to be antithetical to a, a strong and smart choice model. Um, but paradox is fun. Yeah, I mean, so let's first off by sort of establishing what a choice mechanic is. A choice mechanic is my way of doing shorthand the player facing mechanics. So anywhere where a player has to make a decision or is actively altering things, today we're focusing on the uh, character sheets. So we are ignoring for the purposes of this panel uh, the layout because among other things, I can't speak to that at all. I can talk about the content that goes into a character sheet. Also, any character sheet that is completely pre-designed, for example, one you might see in a Secrets and Powers LARP, there is nothing player facing at that point. It's how the player uses the information. So we're more focused on the more traditional RPG uh, design play sheets, or maybe one you'll see in a LARP, um, such as ones found in D&D. Maybe we'll touch on fate a little bit. Um, <laughs> freeform design. Um, possibly the idea of Fiasco or Jason's a name and two descriptors as a character sheet design. Yeah. Cool. All right. Um, and we're going to be talking about both tabletop and LARP in this regard because tabletop is very much within my my wheelhouse, and uh, someone else knows much more about LARP than <laughs> I do. Um, so anything I say about LARP, please take with a, a gigantic grain of salt. Um, 
All right, so let, let's function. Let's start with talking about a choice and what a choice is and what a choice isn't and the things that make it up. And I, I realize that this may seem like it's very obvious stuff because we all know what a choice is, right? Oh, I've had a choice. I'm going to make it. It gets a lot more complicated. I had breakfast today. I made choices off of the menu. There you go. Um, and, fa and that's a wonderful example because the menu is ultimately a narrowing of choices and illustrates one of the first things that any choice is a constraint. Um, and uh, one of the first questions we actually had in conversations was the difference between a choice and an opportunity. Um, because opportunities are very open-ended. Opportunities are, they're almost, they, they are holes that almost anything could fill. Um, and they're great. But they're not necessarily choices in the sense that we're talking about, um, in that they are not something that can be used to do something else. Is that a fair way to put it? Or am I, I, I pontificating too much there? I would say that there are different ways of communicating okay. it. Fair uh, with an opportunity, I see that as you're opening up the spectrum, which is useful, again, if we're looking at a fate-like system, which is, I'm going to go to Bulldogs, which is the fate system I'm most familiar with, um, which is, it does space operas. And you'll find that the stories that are told because you don't have strong constraints are big, over the top, not well controlled, and they might be confined in some way, but you expect things to go horribly wrong in a way where the GM is pretty much chasing after children. Um, with choices, you can usually narrow it down, get a more focused story. Um, I would say usually get more emotional stories as well, because when you have really big things, players will take up the room that you give them. So choices are a good way of allowing them to populate like this room versus the entire convention. That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to talk about the three characteristics that really make up a choice. Um, and if I were to really shorthand this, I would say these are the three characteristics that make something a good choice. But we'll get into why that's not 100% true. Um, and the first is that a, a, a good choice is meaningful. Uh, in that there is a difference between these options that I take. Um, uh, if anyone's familiar, there's the classic idea of Hobson's choice, uh, which is the opposite of this. Uh, if you don't know, the anecdote uh, goes back to uh, possibly uh, mythical uh, Scottish innkeeper who, people, who sold horses to people. And he had lots of horses, and you could pick any horse you want, and they were all terrible. Um, and so Hobson's choice is apparent freedom of choice when it doesn't really matter at all. Uh, that is a great example of a, a choice that uh, is kind of bullshit. Um, it also matters that the choice is genuine. That is that uh, in making the choice, you are making a difference. Um, if, and, and while it's outside the realm of character sheets, uh, there's the classic DM trick of the boss is behind whichever door you open. Um, it's kind of bullshit. It means that's not really a choice. That's kind of faking you out. Um, the last point, and this is definitely the muddiest one, is that the choice is clear. Um, and that clarity may be in terms of what your options are and maybe in terms of what the consequences of those things are. Um, but those are the three elements you want to be thinking about about any choice is, is it meaningful? Is it genuine? Is it clear? And you don't have to have it be all those things but have a good reason why it's not. I have a time pass because I just ranted. No, I think um, one of my opening questions was what's at stake, and I think this sums it up pretty well. Um, 
I'm going to look at the choice of games model a little bit, which for those who aren't familiar, they are a digital, pretty much choose your own adventure game. Um, and because it's a choose your own adventure, it's walking that really fine line of how do you have a very constrained game, but also have the choices be meaningful. And the way that they deal with it is never at any point should the choices be binary. Always provide opportunities, have them be free-flowing, and on a certain level, with all games, you have to follow some sort of riverway. But it's kind of like taking the road from the lake to the ocean. You're going to get there eventually, so the path that you take should be on some level significant. Okay. So. The other thing that is, is going to be the bit that seems obvious is right now we're talking about the content of choices. That I am going to give you uh, whatever the choice is going to be. Let's say we are, we are doing a character creation uh, for whatever our game is, and we'll, we, we've got classes. The choice of a class, that is the classic D&D uh, choice that you're going to make. Um, and we are talking about this in terms of what the content of that choice is. And I can change the game by changing what the list of options are and what that means. And, um, and various flavors of D&D actually have been very good for this. Um, and Monty Cook's Arcana Unearthed is a fantastic example of, oh, well, this game is basically D&D, but I'm changing the choices you have for classes. And in doing so, I am changing all these underpinnings of the game. That's pretty fantastic. But the fact of the choice is also very important. The fact that class is something that is being chosen is not a given. Um, and the decision about which choices someone is going to get to make is also a factor that you can use to your advantage to bring emphasis onto the things that you think are most important. Um, there's an example you liked. Um, Masks? Yes. Um, so this was a thing that was introduced by Magpie Games in general. They have done it on Masks. They have done it originally on Urban Shadows, where um, I think most people are familiar with the Powered by Apocalypse character sheet, where you have your general skin or class, whatever they're called in that. It's your playbook. This is why you are special in the world. And then from there, you have descriptors about yourself so that you can start to quickly get an idea of how you look and fit into the world. Masks and Urban Shadows added specifically the racial description. In every other book before, it was I wear rugged wear versus hunter wear um, versus kink wear. I have obvious gender, ambiguous gender, I have hair, but at the same time this idea of race never actually came up on the piece of paper. And let's be relatively honest, most of the time if you have the options for race you are going to pick one that is something you either identify with or you are knowingly going against this is an identity that I have and I would like to experiment with these different situations in the world, um, respectfully, I'm going to put that, you're going to be respectful when you play other races that are not your own, you are going to be, at least to the best of your ability, educated and not playing to stereotypes. But by putting that on a piece of paper, it opened the door for conversation, which is something that 
made it so that even having choices to the answer made it secondary to the question in of itself. And having it be a choice instead of having the choices change the gameplay. And in both of these, Urban Shadow and Masks, you are dealing with somehow you do not fit into your world. And so this idea of at from the get-go, do you have these fundamental aspects about yourself that make you either fit in or not fit into the world? Ended up having repercussions in gameplay because this idea of who I am and making it by presenting the question, I am alien within my own body, set up the opportunity to play an alien within the world. So in Urban Shadows, you might be a fae or a vampire or a ghost or I would say the most alien example would be you're playing a mortal who has nothing special about themselves and can die at absolutely any moment. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's also beginning to touch the, I think one of the significant parts we need to move into is this idea of the repercussions of the overall gameplay of having these choices in the character sheet because the character sheets are fundamental to how we experience the gameplay and therefore why I think they're particularly interesting to talk about. Um, so I'm gonna start off with the one character sheet that I think really started this idea in my head of what is a choice and how it matters. Last year, Jen Martin play tested a game called Manic Pixie Dream Girls Anonymous. The character sheet had five aspects on it. Your name, roughly what you look like or what you wear, so it might be oddly colored hair, really eclectic dress. You have some quirky trait about you, so you might be a uh, veteran who a veterinarian who is also a circus performer or something like that, playing really heavily into you are a manic pixie dream girl, which for those not familiar with the movie trope, a manic pixie dream girl is someone who is quirky and there to save the boy. And so it's called Manic Pixie Dream Girls Anonymous because you are Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is a term for also boys or gender neutral people who are there to save some significant other or the boy. And that is all they have to their character. And so by having only five things in your character to begin with and specifically having a list to pick from, which even if you choose not to pick from it, it gives you a very pointed idea of this is who I am, and this is all I can be. And then being brought into an American freeform environment, which is like, and now the world is yours to explore, you slowly develop these characters into heavily two-dimensional, into full-fledged three-dimensional characters through the process of play. And this also illustrates uh, a very good trick uh, that you can use when you do these, these things on your own. Um, coming up with a list for someone to choose from is very powerful. The things that you put on the list are the suggestions you're making to the players. It tells people what the game is as you envision it as a designer. But having the last option be, or make something up. Some people don't like that. Um, and if you don't like it, it's not a problem to leave it out. Uh, but the reasons to leave it in are actually pretty compelling because that is not an option anyone is going to use unless they care. And if they care, you're already ahead of the game. You like it when your players care. And if your players care enough to do one of those, to come up with something like that, that is a double pointer to you that that's something you want to pay attention to. 
or potentially if you're in playtest mode, if everybody is picking the other, then there's probably a problem with your list. Um, and but this is how you'd find out. Um, that's it, it's and it's 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 very practical. It's very simple, but it's just a very straightforward hack to let you get the advantages of a choice set. But some players are eventually going to feel constrained, or some players are eventually going to come in and think, I have this thing I really want to do, and your lists do not quite let it work. It leaves space for that without making them do too much work, especially because if you've got five choices and they only really, they, they want to do something weird for one of them, then they can still just go straight off the list for the other four. So, I have other things to dive into, but I do not want to. All right. Um, so, uh, this is going to touch faintly on layout, but actually weirdly in a web sense. So when I think about a choice within a, within a character design, um, I actually weirdly think of it in terms of HTML elements. Because functionally speaking, there are really three categories of choices that I'm offering a player. I'm either offering them a binary choice, yes or no, flip a switch, the, is this thing here or is it not? I'm offering them a drop-down choice, They're, they can pick something from a list, or I'm offering them a text field. And picking the right thing for each of these uh, has some art to it. Um, and which ones I choose to put some defaults on will tell people things about the game. And I'm going to give a, a very specific example, um, which is if I put a spot on your sheet to name your father, I can just put a blank thing there. The fact that I have put that there is kind of potent and powerful in and of itself. I've just told you something about my game, and I've just told you about some of the things that are going to happen in my game. So that's, that's kind of cool. That's an opportunity. That's useful. Now if I say, here's 10 guys, which one, which one of them is your father? I've now changed what we're doing. Because these guys, maybe they already mean something. Maybe they don't. Maybe we're doing the Vincent Baker mode where I've just got a list of cool names and, and their inspiration focus. Or maybe these are 10 guys who are already written up in the setting. I don't know, either one's the right answer, it depends upon what you want to do. But that is a very clear illustration of how switching from an open mode to a constrained mode gives you different tools. And if I wanted the game to be about how these families interact in a Game of Thrones kind of way, then suddenly it really matters which house your father is from. And so that's why that's an important mechanical of choice. Whereas if I'm just like, no, I want this information because it's cool and I want you to have a family and it's tied to, then I leave it kind of open. If that makes some sense. Hmm? Um, and you could have a binary choice of, is uh, George Lucas really your father? Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, and we can totally complicate it. And also, like, I don't have a father. I don't, that's why we, we, we leave some of these options around. Um, but that, that, is, that is just a nice, very tight example. Um, I have more, but... Uh, I'm just thinking at okay, this point. Okay, cool. Um, the other thing she, she brings up very well is uh, the, the number of choices matters. Um, both the number of choices and the number of options. Uh, back in 2004 or so, there was a, a very popular book called The Paradox of Choice, uh, which basically says the more options you give people, the less likely they are to try more things. Um, and there, there's a tipping point where it happens at, and there's all sorts of examples of, like, if you go into your supermarket and, has, and it has six brands of peanut butter, then you're perfectly comfortable trying different types of it. But if your supermarket has 60 types of peanut butter, then you're just going to get your favorite peanut butter and to hell with the rest of this. Um, <laughs> because all this stuff is daunting and paralyzing. And yeah, I just keep that. Um, that was a question I had. Yeah. 
when there's too many, does that become like an opportunity at that point? Like, what, what's your potential? Um, I would actually disagree with that. Mm -hmm. So the difficult with the paradox of choice, which is also frequently referred to as choice paralysis, mm -hmm. is with an opportunity, you are inviting people to bring themselves. However, with the paradox of choice, you end up with an alienation factor where, you know what, this is too much work, I came here to have fun, so I'm just not going to play this game, which Hopefully that doesn't happen to too many people, but it's part of why having that balance. Um, and it's also, I, it's, I ran uh, Bulldogs at Gen Con this year, and with lots of players who are used to playing D&D &D coming to the table, and so tell me about yourself. Well, I'm strong. Yes, but how strong are you? And they would just go silent for literally five minutes. Yeah because they had never been presented this question before and they didn't know how to answer it. So it's part of... It's like yeah, the blank page problem. Yes. It's, it, if there's too much that you can do, it's very hard to picture. Now, here's a trick. In fact, most of the games that you play probably offer you a lot of choices in character generation. And we have, over the course of, of making these games, intentionally or unintentionally, developed mechanisms that make this a little bit easier for us. Um, and one of them is choice gates. Um, if you are making a Powered by the Apocalypse character, the first thing you choose is your playbook. You have other choices which then follow from your playbook, but more importantly, there's now a host of choices you can ignore. And, and this is where it does potentially become an opportunity. Once I've played long enough, and I actually have my hands around all of my choices, suddenly the fact that there's a giant laundry list of other moves and things out there does become a resource I can tap into. When I've played long enough that I'm like, oh, I know this game well, and I'd like to actually buy a move from this playbook over here, that's a fantastic opportunity, but not until I'm ready for that. So yeah, one of the things that uh, most people will catch me talking about a lot is this idea of empowering the player. And I think that's part of what should be at least considered with these choices of how do I invite the player? And I don't see it, say this necessarily in an opportunity-wise, but more in like a co-story fashion, where how do I welcome them into this world and then support them to get their feet on the ground so then they can take advantage of the world. And so by narrowing the choices and then opening up the choices, you end up getting that result of holding their hand for as long as they need it. And by the time they're even in the position to pretty much take off their training wheels, they're going to be ready. You don't have to question that. They will have at least five experience points so they've been playing for a minimum of two hours. And they've got, they've got, and they've got their hand. And that's, and that's ideal, that's the transition you want to make, is you want to have just enough guardrails and just enough constraints that people are at their maximum level of comfort and then able to step out of that when they're ready. Um, and you'll never be able to do that perfectly because it's a little bit different for everybody, but if you can build that into your structure, then, then life gets a little bit better from the outset. And yeah, going back to like, again, how this is a really weird paradox situation. It's not bumpers to limit 
play. It might limit scope of play, but again, you don't want to actually remove it and make it so the choices don't matter. Um, sort of like the analogy of when kids play bowling for the first time, they use those guardrails, which make sure that the ball just stays roughly where it should happen. So even if they're not doing well, that they'll be able to get any points and slowly build up the muscle memory in order to remove that later on. It's not preventing play, it's to facilitate play. Now another little crunchy thing to, to dig into that, that you might not think about, but actually comes up a lot in, in a lot of games, is the question of scarcity versus overlap. When you offer someone a choice, sometimes this is not relevant at all, but sometimes it ends up being super relevant. Um, how many of those things are there? Um, now, if we're talking like literally uh, a resource kind of game, we could literally say, all right, uh, someone here is the Duke of Orange, um, but only one of you. So somebody's going to be the one to make that choice. That's a scarcity-based choice. Once one person makes it, it's out of play. It's not an option. Now, scarcity choices are really interesting because they are automatically interactive. Yeah. Everyone's aware of them. Everyone's... Uh, playing on them, but they also are potentially competitive. They can potentially uh, leave people feeling bad, they can leave people feeling forced, they introduce a door for all kinds of uh, social mechanics that are not part of the game but are potentially problems. Now, there's a really, really common example of this in D&D, that we don't think about this way, but this is what it is, and that is selection of class. Because technically, everyone could pick fighter, but Unless we really set the game up that way, the social expectation is that we're gonna cover the spread. And if Clark wants to be the fighter, then I, as the person who throws myself on the sword, I'm gonna end up playing the cleric, because no one wants to play the cleric. <laughs> um, but that's a good example of how, even if you don't think of it as a scarcity choice, or there not being an explicit thing, um, there still can be a scarcity element to it. Now, the alternative is an overlap choice. Oh, go ahead. One other addition is scarcity choice can work really well for world building. Um, Avery Alder uses it in uh, The Quiet Year, mm. where you start off by each player says, what's one thing we need? Which one of them do we have? And so you spend the rest of the game trying to balance out that scarcity issue. And because it's presented of what do you need, and after you've established that, then you get the question of, well, we only have one of them. I don't want to say it's a full bait and switch, but it really introduces in a hard way that you do have scarcity in the world without yeah. it being presented of only one person can do this. Well, also it makes it less meaningless feeling, because if, if I were to say to you, oh no, there are six things that you don't have, then it's like, okay, I don't care. There's six things, they could be six whatevers. Uh, whereas, oh, we do have one of them. And weirdly, that contrast suddenly makes me feel the tension between what we have and we don't have. And, and brings it brings it into play. Um, now, top back. No overlap choices are ones that everyone can take whatever things they want freely, uh, and there's there's no problems that come from that. Um, in D and D, race is generally kind of fine that way. Overlap choices offer a different set of interesting opportunities because they can implicitly create connections, uh, explicit or implicit. If everyone in the party decides to play a dwarf. We have just made the game different and interesting in kind of an unexpected way. Um, and that's really fantastic. Um, and as a designer, uh, partly as a game designer and especially as a scenario designer, um, those choices are really useful to you because 
those are often the choices that are most helpful in zeroing in on what your players are interested in and in helping build dynamics between the players before things start. I just want to mention the, the whole um, scarcity choice for D&D class is mm -hmm. actually kind of a false choice. You could separate out the class from the role itself. Yes. Uh, but then you end up with the MMO thing where it's like, okay, need DPS. Um, <laughs> um, and it just ends up being a different form of the, of the same problem. But, and, that's, and the thing is, and that's fine. Again, if, if that's the choice everyone is into and everyone is willing to make, no problem. But you don't, again, you don't want to end up with the situation where that one player is throwing themselves on the sword because no one else is willing to make a choice. And there are ways to balance that. In D&D, less so nowadays because they've changed the way healing works, but classically the, the cleric was a necessity. And you then introduce a really tough problem where you're saying, I'm giving you freedom of choice, but somebody has to pick this or you all die. <laughs> that's a bait and switch, and that's bullshit. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that actually really introduces this idea of transparency of choice, which mm -hmm. I know we talked a little bit before, but I don't think we actually kind of dug down into it. Um, with the... The consequences, I, what it's gonna mean when you make a choice. Well, even more than that, it's one of the things, um, so like the other thing I'm speaking on today is about horror, and specifically what I do is in order to make the player feel somewhat okay, but st still get this character in a very difficult situation, um, is I will grab onto things that I know as a character they're very invested in. It might be an NPC, or it might be something that they've been chasing after, a hard item. But make it a very difficult decision where I want to save that, or I want to try to help that, and then not necessarily make it available to do so. And <laughs> in this case, like it, it. it's specifically playing off of the fact that as a player, you know that you don't have to do anything, but as a character, you don't necessarily feel like you do, which is kind of touching on the transparency of choice of, I'm never making you do anything. So it's presenting the lack of choice when you 100% do have choice in the situation. So it's really a fun idea to invert how obvious it is and like how available it is and never at any point having your feels play having your players feel like they're stuck in a situation because that's a really good way to get players irritated at you. Choice is important because it makes people feel empowered. It makes them feel important. Which is why the bullshit choices are doubly bad because, yes. man, the, I mean, I'll, I'll say purely as a player that when the GM pulls a magician's force on me, uh, I'm like, table flip, I'm out of here. Yeah. Does anyone here know what a magician's force is? Okay. I'm going to show you all a fantastic, fantastic magical trick. That is, that is going to reveal to you my incredible psychic powers. <laughs> All right? I have three markers up here that are of some particular color. And uh, I, I'm going to use my powers on okay. you to make you select the marker that I have written down right here. All right? So I'd like you to pick two of those up right now. Okay. Now hold on to those. What colors are you holding? Red and green. Okay. I would like you to think about those. I want you to feel them. Feel the warmth. Feel the connection. Now I'd like you to hand me one of them. All right. 
Now, I would like you to look at what you're holding and tell me what color you're holding in your hand. I'm holding the red one. <laughs> that is a magician's force. Now, the trick here is that if she had done it differently, pick up two of them, pick two of them. All right, um, now hand me one of them. No, no, don't do the same thing. That, 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 that. I, so, yeah. no, it's more a case yes. of, like, I'm all right, actually... So, <laughs> let's say she picked up these two. Then the dramatic thing would be, all right, thank you. Now set those aside, and I'd like you to look at what's on the table. What color are you seeing there on the table? Oh. <laughs> I've already got the answer. I have complete information. I can... All the rest of this is bullshit. Um, and that, that is a magician's force. And it's an incredibly common... Uh, marketing and manipulation tactic um, and it's just one of those tricks that is worth knowing because once you see it and start noticing it it is also slightly maddening <laughs> um, but uh, all right sorry I had a point that I totally just distracted myself from um, right in fact that comes back to the, the real truth here um, it is okay to obscure the consequences of a choice to make it unclear exactly what think what's going to come of it uh, you don't have to be 100% transparent about it uh, to your players but as a designer you must know the consequence of the choice um, so if you don't then your lack of, of, of clarity is going to cascade down to the players it's also make the choices like the consequences interesting because we're all familiar with the really unfortunate DM move of you're eaten by the dragon and die. Your character is now out of the game and you're sitting for however long it's just And and actually and this is an anti pattern and, and one thing and one thing to explicitly avoid. Um, it is very easy to use choices to blame your players. Um, it is a it's a dick move, but it's a common tactic to offer up a choice, kill them as a result of it, or punish them, or do bad things, but it's not your fault. They did it to themselves. They made that choice. Now, whether you want to call this bullshit, or a force, or gaslighting, or any other thing, this is, again, it's just a, it's just a bad tactic and a misuse of, uh, of one of the better tools in your toolbox. Um, and so, steer clear of that. Um, but to come back on, on the, the designer end, um, to use the cleric example, um, if you as a designer do not realize that there must be a cleric in your game, and you go and ahead and proceed to offer these options of classes to people, um, then you are creating a problem with your own game. Um, and it is, there is always a temptation to think that you've been more fair than you have. Um, we all, fall into this from time to time. We all love our games to some extent or another, and it is very easy to think that something's not really going to be a problem. Um, you got to watch that instinct. I don't have a silver bullet for it. I don't have a magical solution except just to say be cognizant that you really need to think through what actual choices are being made and what you're really forcing onto people while maintaining the sense of choice that makes you feel better about yourself. Sorry, that got dark. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, I've, I've hit most of the... Uh, yeah. uh, I have a question when you talked about binary choices. Yes. Do you mean that in the affirmative yes, no, or do you mean either or? 
For example, is like, do you investigate the, the crate on the ground, or do you take a left or right path? That is a fantastic question, and the answer is a little bit both. Um, but what I specifically mean is choices that are very constrained, um, where it is really yes or no, left or right, this or that. Um, we don't like those kinds of choices normally because the reality is we're all complicated people living in a complicated world and uh, when we see a binary choice, most of us, I mean, so my, uh, my kid was maybe four years old and being a four-year-old and a giant pain in the butt and the uh, advice we got from the pediatricians was you offer him two choices that are either ones of the things you want and, uh, and then he'll pick one and he'll feel okay about it and, and do what you want. And that never worked on him ever. <laughs> uh, literally from age four, he always would, would put forward a third option as the thing that he does. And but that's what that's players useful. do. It is. Oh, like, it's, it's, it's useful when, again, touching again on choice paralysis and trying to correct that. Um, like, I'm sort of going back on my idea a little bit before. If you're specifically trying to get the players to feel paralyzed, then you might have an issue where having a super long list is a good thing. But... For the most time, I am biased by running a lot of con games. Having people wasting time just because they're scared to make a choice isn't mm -hmm. useful. Um, and using binary choice is a very good way to knock people out. Um, like, I have a really bad habit of asking people, should I eat this or that because I can't decide? And then always picking the one they didn't pick. <laughs> yep. That's still useful. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things of just by presenting a choice and then being confronted by here is now your option, by removing the choice yep. can be sometimes clarifying in uh, how the choices actually matter to yep. you. Well, and paradoxically, the real trick with a lot of binary choices is that the choice made is often less important than the fact that the choice was offered. Um, it is... You generally will want to offer a binary choice when you either need people to answer it very quickly, um, though that's fraught because sometimes uh, fewer choices can be even more paralyzing for people who overthink things. I have no idea how that meant. Um, <laughs> but, uh, or when it's really, no, I want you to think about this. I, I, like literally if I were to have in character creation, um, have you ever been convicted of a crime? It's a yes or no question may not have a huge amount, but now I'm, I, I've made sure that part of character generation is you thinking that and going, oh, so all of us are thinking about that question as part of it. So if I wanted to actually do a con game, then I might offer you a list to say, all right, well, which, con, which crime were you convicted of? And I might offer you a list and, and have some tie-in, and I'd probably give the names cool Donald Westlake-esque job names and stuff, so uh, you know, you were, uh, you were part of the Cairo job, and because that would be a way of getting flavor. But if I just want you to think about it a little bit, a quick binary choice tends to be a, a, a nice, dirty trick for making that happen. Um, Just thinking back to the illusion of choice, yeah. I saw that recently I'm playing Fallout 4 again, and one of the things you get in this dialogue is like, who are you looking for? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. When you choose that, it's like, oh, come on, tell me. You go through all choices <laughs> until you're forced to pick. Yep. And read, tell them about, you know, your son doesn't do something. Like, it's just frustrating as a player. You have to go through that. Yep. You know. It's like, okay, look, if you were going to do that, then just skip to the end. Right. Yep. Uh, we started doing that. Oh, um, I was just going to ask if you could talk about um, optimization sure. versus um, uh, like role playing and Absolutely. Uh, can you just quickly clarify what you mean by optimization? 
So optimization, like, say you're playing D and D, you want your character to do the most damage. Okay. You want to make the, the choices that make you do well in the game. So, in fact, in that exchange, you just clarified the most the most critical part of that, because there is no such thing as optimization. There's only optimization for something, um, and. This is an important one to bear in mind because it comes up with both. Uh, it comes up with we, we think of it in terms of like mechanical crunchiness. I want like the best combinations to 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 kick ass. But I will tell you, I know a lot of really hardcore role players whose version of optimization is, oh no, I'm going to take these seven deeply traumatic emotional issues so that I can bubble them to the surface in every moment of my play. <laughs> <laughs> and there is not much difference between those two behaviors. Um, because what they both are, are I as a player think this is fun and I want more of this. Oh, the thing I think is fun is winning. Oh, the thing I think is fun is spotlight. Oh, the thing I think is fun is pain. <laughs> <laughs> so I think optimization is awesome. I think that uh, as much as it gets a bad rap, I think anytime we have these optimization things uh, in, in place and we have people making choices along those lines, that is not a red flag but it is something to look at and say, are my players optimizing for something other than what this game is for? Because in D&D, yeah, everyone, the, the only reason that optimization is a problem is when you have mixed op uh, optimization tastes within the table. In which case, yeah, you power nerd, your job is to help everyone else so you guys can, can all work together. And because if you're just making optimization for yourself and don't want to help the team, then to hell with you. But, um, but it's a team game, and, and fighting is what you do. So great, make everyone good at fighting. If you're doing your Ventru intrigue game and one person decided to optimize a combat monster, the problem is not that they optimized. The problem is that they want to play something different than what you're running. Um, sorry, I ran with that. No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to um, yeah. talk about the bullshit choice. For okay. A <laughs> What, what comes up often is that people will ask me, like, oh, how do you be a good GM? Yep. And then the, the boss is behind whichever door you come behind. Is a thing that I actually present as an option, which is terrible yep. canned adventure writing. Yeah. So if you are writing the adventure as a designer... As a writer, never. But if you are improvising as yes. a GM, and you haven't already thought about what's behind doors two and three, mm -hmm. the boss is behind whichever door you go behind, and then you go back, if your players go, well, let's go back to that room and go behind the doors, and yep. you make up what else is then you, you yeah. <laughs> force that choice. Yep. Um, but, like, I totally lost the train of thought. That's where I depend. But sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's and okay. And, like, if you're improvising that, that's totally fine. But I also tell people, don't present a choice that isn't one. Right. Yes. Don't present three doors if they all only go to the boss. You yep. have one door with a door with a label over it that says that boss. That says boss. Right. Exactly. And because I'm a practical guy, I've, I've faked it in the past because you know what, sometimes I've only got 45 minutes before the session is done and I don't <laughs> want them going down off to that, that side thing. Um, sometimes you go with it. That's why, that's why those things that make up a choice, I said they're all important and you gotta think about them all, but they're not all necessary all the time. And it's also touching on the difference of uh, designing a game and running a game <laughs> are two different <laughs> monsters. These are, again, yeah. things to consider. Um, but Part of why we're having this conversation is because we don't really sit down and talk about what makes choices important often enough. We talk about how to be a good GM, we talk about how to design good games, but the choices are kind of left out. So like, I, I agree, if you're running a game and you're either making it up or 
you're running out of time. It's not that you're removing choices, you're giving people a complete story arc, which is slightly different than just yeah. not having significant choices. Absolutely. Like they're two different conversations. All right, sorry. Um, as players and designers, when has that <coughs> construction of choice impressed you personally? Uh, one of the things that I've re read recently, mm -hmm. um, it's an early alpha, so like you're probably not going to be able to find this, but Bronwyn Sperling is writing a alien sex game. Okay. And even when you're the human, there are, it's about consent and it's about uh, just figuring out who you truly are. Bronwyn is a trans writer. They are very open about that and this is really touching on those feelings of being a trans person and learning what your body is to yourself. And so even under the human selection, there's a very obvious question of how many arms do you have? And it's buried within uh, what colors your hair, how long is your body, and by step by step, it's paragraphs of questions about different aspects about yourself. And so it's very good at making you feel alien within this own body that you are creating for yourself and then developing it in. And again, it's touching on the questions themselves are more important than the answers because you start to be able to figure out what questions you want to ask, what is important to yourself, simply because the questions are being asked. My answer is no one here is smart. <laughs> because I love Mass Effect uh, so much. Um, it, it's a sickness. Um, and, uh, and for anyone who's unfamiliar, Mass Effect is a Bioware game that is most iconic for its Paragon and Renegade choices. Um, which is to say you make choices over the course of the game and they have effects that carry forward based on whether you've been a nice guy or an asshole. Um, and you can complete the game either way, you can do things, but things will play out differently to do it. And sometimes it's ham-fisted and clunky and annoying, but aspirationally it is wonderful and inspiring to me because um, one of the things that it can do that we have a hard time at with tabletop is having the consequences of your actions be aggregate and removed from your actions. Um, this can be very hard to pull off in tabletop play and it makes a lot of social things end up feeling a little too cause and effect sometimes. Uh, whereas the fact that your problems might just sort of accrue because you've been an asshole to everyone in town and they're not going to turn around and do something bad to you but like oh some point further down the line suddenly some problem emerges as a result of that makes for a very organic feeling world um, and I'll tangent off to say the trick that I like for that is I like using cards to model this because um, if you have a deck of cards that you're using for anything that comes up regularly the plot elements the characters whatever and if I do an asshole move, then the GM throws an asshole card in there. And it's now just in there. And when it comes up again, maybe it'll never come up. Total random chance. But the more of an asshole I am, the more cards are going to be in there, and the greater the odds of something as something coming up as a result of that. But there's never going to be a, you've been an asshole, and now I'm going to play the asshole punishment consequence. Uh, so that's just... Mass Effect uh, and the entire Bioware genre of games and, and all the things that have since come from it with the, the, the um, Life is Strange and, and the Telltale games and all the things, this whole genre is a fantastic thing built on top of incredibly complicated spreadsheets that still has a, a lot of, of potential, so. Uh, Thank you. Um, 
see if I can articulate this quickly. Uh, one of the issues I have both as somebody who runs games and somebody who's working on a system is uh, two. I don't. I don't think there's a, a hard answer for this, but mm -hmm. just your opinions on a rule of thumb or generally a sort of guidepost for you on dealing with two issues I see with when you're setting up choice is the amount of information revealed about the nature of the choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because at a certain point, if you have intelligent yep. uh, players, there's a certain amount of, hey, well, tell me this, tell me this, tell me, oh, okay. And you can get to the point where it's like, it, clearly, just go down the left side, okay? <laughs> so if, that, if, that is, if that's in mind, own that from the outset. Hmm? Own that from the outset. If you really have something, because never do, never do the, I'm setting up a choice, but I really have an answer. Well, no. Right, but but the problem is we do that a lot because it because it, here's the thing it feels more fair to do that. That's and uh, the it's not. and the rigidity of consequences the other part yeah. where it's like because in real life you screw up and then you breathe for thirty seconds and say oh I'm gonna go talk to my partner and say I really didn't mean what I just said mm -hmm. and apologize now. Sure. But in game it can often be you made that choice. Is there I mean? Well, here's the thing. You're but the thing is you're making genre decisions there. Which is totally, you're making genre decisions, which is totally appropriate. How much each of those things stick is going to be, I can't give you a right answer because the answer that you choose is you deciding what your game is. Absolutely. Um, I, yeah. I, but what I mean is just, is there any... Seven things, seven things, ten seconds apiece. I, <laughs> there we go. I don't know what that means. I, literally, if I'm going to give you a list of things, it's not going to be more than seven uh, seven things long, and it's not it, it, verbally. If it's written down, I'll use a slightly different rubric. Okay. Uh, but if I need to run things by you, I'm not going to give you more than seven things, and probably not more than four. And if I can't explain each option uh, coherently in ten to fifteen seconds, it's too complicated. Yep. Oh, uh, Last you? question. Oh no. Five okay. Minutes. Okay. Oh yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I had a question about um, like how to how to balance content behind choices. Okay. Where, like it seems like I've been playing a lot of games, especially like Choose Your Own Adventure, yep. where it's like you know you, you, there's 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 more game behind certain choices and less game behind. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like the designer has a lot of di like inadvertently placed bias in things. I wonder if there's like ways to tackle where you can step away from it and you can look at it like objectively. Absolutely. So it's easier to talk about this in an RPG sense than in a choose-your-own-adventure sense because with choose-your-own-adventure it's set in a certain way, it's programmed in a certain way and sort of touching on what we were talking about before, the presentation of questions can also present bias that we inherently have. Um, well, which, it's also supposed to be replayable. That's true, but there are certain things that are in lock if you are a designer, because a designer will always have bias, and I'm under the camp of, if you have bias, figure out if that's a good or bad bias, and then lean into that, because by trying to say that you don't have bias or that you are gonna make your game unbiased, it's not gonna work. So in that way, when you take up those choices and you notice that they're biasing in one way or another, um, in an RPG sense, you can say that I'm biased in this one way, so if you go down the certain path of choices, then I am going to support that. And then when you go down another pathway, which maybe you don't feel as comfortable with or whatever, use that as an opportunity for structure it somewhat and provide some foundation, but have that be a way of and opening it up to the individual players. Yeah, I have a totally different tack. Um, <laughs> uh, 
which is not contradictory, but yeah. different. Yep. Um, this is only a problem if you do encounter-based design, uh, because at that point, encounter you, you're dealing with encounter gates and things. If you do NPC-based design or resource-based design, then even if the choices the choices may change how these things are interacted with, but it is less likely to remove them from the table. So, if uh, if you ever look, Owen Casey Stevens writes wonderful dungeons. They are very small, and they are always uh, centered around the na the main NPC villain who's sort of running things and, and their motive and what's going on. And these are the my favorite dungeons in the world because they can be run and played in almost any way. Because there's always the, when the players make a choice, when the players do a thing the NPC is still there and ready to respond to that. So their choices matter, their choices happen, but there's no choice at which, oh, this NPC is no longer in play, except perhaps we don't want to go in this dungeon because they're going to eat our face. We're unfortunately out yeah. of time. Yeah. Uh, Owen Casey Stevens, uh, S-T-E-P-H. Uh, I forget who he works for these days, but he's written a crap load of stuff over the years. Okay. Thank you, everyone. I hope. I mean, it was slightly unorganized, but we knew that from the well, get-go. absolutely. Yeah. Like, it's a new topic. Yeah, no, no. Uh, I was going to mention the, the choice of games, which I, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, even within that genre or that group of games, yeah. there are great examples and bad examples. Like, my, my yeah. favorite is choice of robots. Yeah. Because the way you can end up taking over the world, or you can end up never leaving your lab and just, mm -hmm. like, become, like, a nobody. And yeah. like, I feel like there's, there's real choices. A lot of them use what's called the string of pearls approach, where it's like, okay, you have some choices, and then none of it matters because we get you back down to here. Yeah. Now you have some choices, and none of it matters because we can get you back down to here. Yeah. I so. mean, I'm not going to say any of these things are perfect, uh, particularly with choice of games, you are working with individual authors. Right. And so some of them are really going to run with the style, and others are going to do the best they can because they are amateur writers trying to create something fun.